Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Professor Timothy Snyder. Professor Snyder is the Levin Professor of History at Yale University and the author of The Road to Unfreedom, On Tyranny, Black Earth, Bloodlands, and most recently, Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Diary. And those are just a few of his works. He's received the Hannah Arendt Prize, the Leipzig Book Prize for European Understanding, and an award in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He lives in New Haven, Connecticut. As I said, he teaches at Yale. And this is now the third time that I'm having an opportunity to spend time with Professor Snyder. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I will throw out one other mention. On Tyranny has a new graphic edition, and the illustrator for that is Nora Krug. So I want to give her a shout out as well, because the book is the newest edition. The graphic edition is beautiful. The illustrations are great and really make the story come alive. So with all of that, I want to welcome Professor Snyder to the deep dive. How are you? Thank you. Good to be with you. We're going to cover quite a bit. And as I told you before we started recording, I want to start with our malady and the journey of that book. And what really struck me as I went through it, and I did read some essays as you were releasing the book that that you kind of shared, December 29th of 2019 was this great personal reckoning with your health and your introduction or kind of management of our national healthcare system. And shortly thereafter, we have clearly the pandemic starts in full force in the beginning of 2020. And what really hit me was something that was very personal for you at the end of 2019 becomes part of this bigger communal community reckoning with our health, the systems around it. And I want to give you an opportunity to really give our listeners a sense of what you found yourself in that moment, because when you read it, it's really quite harrowing. All right. Thanks for that question. In a way, it's a tough one to answer because on the one side, there's what I was actually going through as I was in that moment where I was very close to dying. And I can't say that in that moment, I was having all these reflections, which I will then share. So like the one side of it is that experience of the opposite of life, like not just the realization, like we all know that life's going to come to an end, but like the realization that the curtain may be, the curtain is actually coming down and it hasn't hit the stage yet, but it's coming down. I try to just describe that in the book as closely as I could because not to try to give it meaning or say that it made anything else make sense, but just to kind of help us all feel the weight of life, not as this everyday thing, but life as as a one zero type proposition and what it felt to kind of see zero there on the horizon and and what it felt to like to have like those moments where the things I was seeing around me in the hospital room reminded me of other things and other people who I knew and other people who were no longer with me. That's all in the book. 
then there's also, I mean, before I get to the stuff I thought I learned, like there's also this thing that I called in the book once I thought about it a little bit, the solidarity and the solitude where I realized that like I was on my own and like in some sense, if I was going to make it, I was going to make it on my own. And like, there was this, like I was being treated very badly and we can talk more about that. But I had this sense that like, not even this sense, like more like this animal instinct that I had to live, like I had to live. I couldn't, like this couldn't happen. This thing that was happening, it couldn't happen. And that may have just, you know, that may have just been like a correlate with an adrenaline rush. You know, I'm sure there's some chemistry going on there too. But the way I experienced it was like this rage and solitude. Like I was alone. It was at night. I couldn't move. Bad things had happened to me. Objectively speaking, probabilistically speaking, I was at a moment where I should have died. And I was raging, like this pure, like pure rage, this pure rage, this can't happen. But then like there was this other feeling that was, so that was the solitude. There was this other feeling, which I called later solidarity, where the reason why it couldn't happen was my kids. That was the main reason why it couldn't happen. And like, I pictured them, like I pictured them as like being on the same raft with me. This wasn't like a conscious literary creation. It was just like in my head. And then I pictured the raft, like the logs of the raft falling apart. And like them just being on one log and like maybe that log is not going to stay afloat, you know, without the whole raft that was kind of our life together, our family life together. And that was a solidarity, right? That like, yeah, like I'm raging, I'm all alone, but the reason why I can't die is not so much me, you know, it's because like I'm part of other people's lives and I'll be taking something away from them. Like that's the stuff that was going on the 29th and the 30th and the 31st of December, 2019. And then there's what I thought about later, you know, like then there's all the stuff I realized about later. Maybe I'll just pause and let you ask the question again, because the stuff I thought about later has to do with like how our health system doesn't work and the privilege that's involved and the way race fits into it all. Those are all like that stuff, to be honest, like that stuff starts coming into my head after like as I'm recovering and like yeah. I'm trying to make sense of life again, not just my like trying to make sense of the world again. So I'm just going to stop and let you ask the question again. Yeah, because that's what really hit me was of course, the moment in time, like I said, as you read it, anyone reading it or kind of checking out maybe the essays about it, it's a very harrowing description to be sitting in the hospital, in these emergency rooms, and not being understood, not being listened to, in in many ways, not being taken seriously. And then there's the reflections that come after it. And One of the things that, and you've already mentioned this word, is you mentioned rage, right? And that's such a palpable, like, emotion. It's such a palpable word. And it reminded me as I was reading it of two things. One, we have the very recent Capitol insurrection at the beginning of this year in January. This manifestation of, by and large, white rage storming the gates, so to speak. And then it took me also back to a a very well-known James Baldwin quote. I'll read it in full for the opportunity for those who might not be familiar that are listening, where he says, to be a Negro in this country and be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage about all the time. So as you start to think about your reflections, I want you to also spend some time talking about that rage that was manifested both personally and then in broader context. So it's a funny thing. Like part of this I did to myself, like I, wherever this comes from, 
and there is something American about it. Like I was unable to take my own pain seriously. And then when I went to a hospital and I happened to be in Germany doing some work, but I did like, I was pleased with myself that I even got myself to go to a hospital because that's really not my style, like going to the hospital. But I was pleased with myself. I went to the hospital and the doctors in Munich, they were the first to mess something up. Like they should have done one kind of scan. They did another kind of scan. They didn't see that I had an infection in my appendix. And then that's what burst. And I got peritonitis. And then I, I got a liver infection. Then I got sepsis. And that's how I almost died. But when I went to the hospital in Germany, I spent the night there. And the next morning they said, you know, you just have, you have some kind of infection. Give it a couple of days, take some painkiller. Okay. I was happy. I thought, okay, it hurts, but like, it's not a big deal. And in my mind, pain is not a big deal. And the reason why, like, I'm wrong about that. Okay. I'm trying to learn. But the reason I go through all that is that I went back to my hotel room and I was reading the collected works of James Baldwin. Like that was my thing. That was my airplane reading. And so it was like, I had this pain in my gut and I would like sit in the bathtub because I hurt so much, but I was reading James Baldwin when I was doing that. So my, my rage and the white rage, I'm going to see if I can try to work this somehow. I mean, I think the place I was coming from was a place where I was thinking this is supposed to work, right? Like, which is like the normal, which is like, that's kind of the normal white guy approach to stuff. Like it's supposed to work. Like I ran this race for sickle cell anemia a couple of weeks ago. And it was, so it was basically an African-American type scene. And like at the end of it, I was looking for something and I couldn't find it. Like they didn't have the results of the race. And like, and so, and they were playing music. And so I wish we were on video because I could like show. So like I did this like thing, like I made a circle with my hands. It was a sign of impatience, right? But like basically white guy impatience. Like why isn't this like working the way that it's supposed to work? And there was a black lady there and she looked at me with the music in the background and she thought I was dancing, Right. So she gave like, like dancing really badly. So she gave me like a big smile and she started like moving her head. Like, <laughs> so I was like, wow, like this encapsulates a lot. Like just this scene, like right here, like her, like kind interpretation of me, like kind of being a jerk. So like when I got to the hospital in America, like there's a lot of, there are a lot of other bits of the story, but by the time I got to the hospital in New Haven, I mean, I kind of thought that it was just supposed to work. And the way that that went well for me ethically was like, I didn't call, like I didn't actually call anybody for help. Like all my friends afterwards said, like, what the, you know, what are you doing? You can't just go to the emergency room. You have to call somebody. Right. And then a lot of like people were angry at me afterwards. Like you risk your life. You were stupid, like on this principle. And for me, it wasn't even a principle. I just thought I was dumb. You know, I thought like, this is supposed to just, it's going to work for me. Like it works for me as well as it works for everybody else. So there was that, like the sense that it should work, which was naive. And then the, the racial part comes in where, okay, so I had a good friend who was with me who happens to be a, like a hotshot physician, a cardiologist. And she kindly came with me and she wasn't sure of my diagnosis either, like to be fair, but she was clear that something was really wrong. And she knew me personally. And like, she actually ran a unit of that hospital and she came in the middle of the night and like, here is where I'm not sure if I'm going to get to white rage with this. I'm doing my best, but like, here was where like my, like my racial consciousness, like at the brink of death, like the stuff you really know, like you really know about your world, but you wouldn't maybe say. Cause like I was lying there, not even in the emergency room yet, in the waiting room. Cause like they thought I was just, it was a Saturday night that I thought I was like drunk or something, like nothing was wrong with me. I was lying there, I couldn't really stand up. And my friend, who's a female black physician, is trying to like get through to the receptionist, like where the nurse who's standing there and explain that something is wrong and she can't do it. And I remember like this thought, like, where's your badge, right? Like the stuff that we all know, because if like the nurse can't see her badge, 
then the nurse is going to think this is just some crazy black lady in the Saturday night, right? She's not going to take her seriously as a physician. And like that whole night, so one of the reasons I almost died is that when we find to get into the emergency room, my friend was trying to make the doctors who were there take the situation more seriously, and she failed. And it was clearly racial. Some of it was gender, but it was clearly racial. Like the other doctors were kind of getting into it with her in a way which like didn't make any sense. Like there's this patient here. He's got a fever of 104. Something is wrong. He can't move. Like something is wrong. And like this American thing is playing out in front of my eyes. And I can't like, I can recognize what it's happening, right? Like, cause it's so elemental to like America that you actually know this is what. And so that's where race comes into my story, Philip, like right there. Cause of course, then I have the thought like, okay, like what I'm doing is just like a tiny taste of all this, right? Yeah. Like, that's just a tiny taste of all this. Like this is, for me, I'm in this situation, which is exceptional. And then I'm watching this other thing going on, which for other people is normal, which for me is exceptional, and which actually made it more likely that I was going to die. And so like, that's where race comes in. I can't quite make the last step to like, the, I'm sorry, I can't quite get to the white rage from here. Because mm-hmm. like the rage that I felt, I think was like, kind of elemental. Like, I don't think it was about like, it was just about life. But that's how rage comes into the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think they're the same at all. But like, as a prevailing emotion that seems to be running through the zeitgeist that people feel whether it's it's justified or not they're feeling left behind and it made me think about the malady that you describe as your personal journey is also connected to a greater national malaise or malady mm-hmm. that the healthcare system is a symptom of how we are not free. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to give an opportunity to kind of walk through that idea because I think it's actually quite apparent to some, but it's it's not as apparent to others. Okay. I'm going to start this with the negative version and then try to give the positive version. So Absolutely. So going back to privilege versus freedom, because if you're in a privileged society, you're not in a free society. When you're in the emergency room or like when you're in any medical situation in the U.S., you think like, do I have insurance or not? And you can't not think that because that gets the first thing everybody talks to you about. It doesn't matter how sick you are. Like they want to talk about your insurance. And then you think like, okay, do I have better insurance? And inevitably, unless you're some kind of saint, you're thinking, do I have better insurance than that person? Maybe they have better insurance than me. Like, wait, who's got the best insurance? Like who's going to get attention now? Because you think, and you're correct, that whether or not you get attention is not determined even mainly by your condition. It's determined by a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's not paranoia. Like, that's just it. We have commercial medicine. And so the best thing you can have in America is you can think, you can have that thought, I've got better insurance than somebody else. And what that means is that you are in this hierarchical situation where in order to feel good, you have to feel like you're doing less badly than other people, right? And then like we call that freedom, like, oh, I have the freedom to choose my private insurance, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's not freedom, right? That's not freedom. It's just like being less afraid. And you confuse being less afraid with being free. And this is also an education because if like you, of course, you encounter the healthcare system your whole life. And so every time you encounter the healthcare system, you're trained to have these thoughts and then that becomes normal, right? And then if you expand that out to the society as a whole, it goes like this. We all need healthcare and we all need a bunch of other stuff like education and pensions, like to have clean water, to have a normal free life. Because if we're worried about water and pensions and like, what are we going to do when we're old or where our kids going to go to school and what am I going to do when I'm sick? We're not actually free people, but we can only do that together, right? We can only do that together. 
But the game that's been played or the con that's been pulled since the 80s is to say, look, like those black people or sometimes those immigrants, they are just abusing all this stuff. Then the other part of the con is like white person to white person. You don't really need this. Like you're home on the range. Like you can do this on your own. You're tough. Like if you get sick, it's just going to be like survival of the fittest and you're the fittest, like all this nonsense, right? And a lot of white people go for that, went for it in the 80s, still go for it now. And so the problem with this double con, where it's like, he, we all know the black people are you know, just going to exploit this. And we also all know that we don't really need it. The problem with that is, I mean, there are many problems with that, aside from the, just the simple racism of it, is that it then makes it impossible to do the stuff together that we need to do together. And you end up thinking as a white American, like what your idea of freedom is not that we all have the stuff we need and therefore we can live these cool individual lives. Your idea of freedom is, hey, I'm less likely to be arrested. I'm less likely to be incarcerated. If I encounter this, the government, it's going to treat me less badly. It's all about the less badly. It's no longer about the good for everybody. It's like, it's less like me and my tribe are going to be treated less badly than other people. And then you confuse that with freedom. You teach your kids that that's freedom. And so that's the negative version. And then like the way it lines up positively or could line up positively is we, you know, you have to think, okay, freedom for any of us, you know, so you can see my idea. I'm my head is around the idea of freedom right now. So you could talk about this in other ways. I just like freedom, but freedom for any of us means like the conditions of freedom for all of us. Cause if you don't, you can't line up healthcare tribally. If you try to do it, you just end up with this, polarization, but you end up with this hierarchy and the sense that I'm cool if I'm less bad than other people as a group. And what you need is just to get the healthcare out of the way, like just get all this stuff out of the way. And so people can then go on and live their lives and flourish. So that would be the positive version. And, you know, that really ties into, I think, the earlier part of the story, which also was one of the pieces that I really highlighted in the book when you were talking about the favoritism right? That people were reflecting and asking you like, oh, why didn't you just call someone and get hooked up or whatever the language is? And that that really resonated with me on a different level because we've been recently here in New York, Mayor de Blasio said he's going to get rid of the gifted and talented educational programming. So it's this mm -hmm. sort of tiered programming that goes through, like I was a product of that coming through grade school where you're identified as gifted and somehow you now are on a completely different track than, mm -hmm. than like other kids, right? And this is often, it was seen as a source of pride when I was young and many people are, are very engaged with these sort of legacy ideas. And your notion of favoritism was connected to healthcare, but I want to connect it to this broader topics of why are we choosing the precarious state? Yeah. Like what's running through the national DNA that's making precarity the choice rather than another alternative? I think that's a great question. I think it goes back to everybody's worries about democracy, like from the beginning, like from the Greeks forward, everybody's worried about democracy is that we're not such reasonable creatures. Plato has one set of worries, Aristotle has another set of worries, but Plato's worried more worried about oligarchy, Aristotle's more worried about like demagogues. But the idea is like, we're not really such reasonable creatures. So the stuff that you're talking about, like choosing to, choosing meaningless suffering, like suffering, like that's kind of the way we are, say the ancients. And then the enlightenment comes along and with all like the appropriate qualifications, I'm very sympathetic to this idea. The enlightenment comes along and it says, of course we're not, but we can know enough about the world to figure out how to educate ourselves 
And like, then we could become that kind of person, right? I'm with that. Like not so much with like the historical enlightenment, but, but with that basic idea of like daring to know and like daring to engage the world, daring to reflect on yourself, daring to put this all into practice with the next generation and then maybe democracy, right? So it's so a part of democracy is not taking us the way we are because the way we are isn't that great, but imagining that we're going to be doing the self-reflection all the time, reflecting one another, like reflecting against the world. That's part, that's the project that has to be part of the project that's built in. I guess what I'm trying to do is sort of normalize what you're saying, that it doesn't surprise me that humans like look to tribal leaders and they want to suffer pointlessly. And in the moment they suffer, like they turn the suffering into meaning. I mean, I think that's how we kind of are. And it takes a lot of work to make us less like that. So you can break it down in the US into finer pieces, like we already did a little bit talking about the welfare state and public services. Like you can take something away from everybody that they need by telling some people that they don't really need it because they're better. And then they get this psychic, you get this psychic burst where you get that feeling. And then you also have the sense that like, this is somehow, it's not just I'm better, but like somehow this must be meaningful that I'm going through all of this. And then you get these extreme cases where like people really think it's meaningful to get sick, but it's not meaningful to get, like, it's just, you're just sick. Like there's no point suffering for this stuff. There's nothing really there you're suffering for. It's just your suffering. But then like one more American thing, I mean, this is something I'm caught on now, as you can tell, but I think we've totally abused and Orwellized basically the word freedom, where people think that because nobody's doing anything for them and they're suffering, like that that's freedom. What do white people do with all those guns they buy? They shoot themselves with them. Like, is that really freedom? I mean, that's the number one source of gun deaths. And that's like the main thing that people, the main consequential thing that people do with those guns is they shoot themselves. I mean, being alone, like the opioids, like being alone, is that really freedom? But we've turned the language around so that like the worse it gets, the more we talk about freedom. Whereas I think, no, to be free, like you've got to have multiple futures and like there have to be a lot of different things. You have to have your own values and your own language. And that requires a lot of us doing a lot of stuff together. Like that's sort of maybe something like a paradox, but we have to do a lot of stuff together before we can create that society where we can be free. But nobody talks about freedom that way. Like the left has kind of given up on talking about freedom. And when the right talks about freedom, they often mean this thing that seems to me like just kind of alienation and loneliness and like what you're calling precarity. That like, that's just life. Like that's just the way it is. That's just tough. And it sounds like, because I think about stories and the evolution of stories, and I think there has been something running through the... American DNA of the rugged individual, right? The person looking out onto the horizon and manifest destiny and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the streets are gilded with gold and all this kind of stuff. Like there's a narratives that kind of run through the way we tell these stories, but there have been other stories of solidarity and multiracial work that has been done. The the civil rights movement, most famously, right, is often characterized as a predominantly or historically Black movement. And maybe it was a predominance of Black and brown bodies, but there were always other actors engaged. There were white people that were marching. There were women. There were queer folks. Bayard Rustin, most not only, but most famously, and another woman I'll be referencing in my drop later on, Pauli Murray. But I'm saying all that to say that how do we, knowing these false narratives of freedom and the stakes are getting ever higher, how do we tell 
or start to interject different types of stories so we start to get different outcomes? Oh, I love that question because like it speaks to, we're talking about America, right? And I'm like, I'm an American and I'm a historian, but I'm not an American historian. Like I had this friend and colleague, Tony Jett, who's sadly no longer with me. And like, he would say like, I'm, I'm an American, and I'm a Jew, but I'm not an American Jew. And so like, I, I'll take a shot at this, but like mostly when I do so, I'm referring to and learning from you know, the work of my colleagues who do work on U.S. history. My general point is would be that for us, like for everybody, there's an imperial story. I mean, I would call the story you just, the first one you mentioned, like I would call that imperial story. And it has its own limits. So it has a basis in reality, you know, that settlers come and there is a survival of the fittest. It's technological and epidemiological, right? It's not characterological. It's not about your race or anything like that, but it's, a, if you come with smallpox and machine guns, you're going to have an edge for a while. And that edge is by the third quarter of the 20th century, it's basically over. Like, so, and you know, the Mar European maritime empires have to wrap it up. It's basically an even playing field. You know, the Americans can't win Vietnam. Soviets can't win Afghanistan. It's basically an even playing field from that point forward. There aren't going to be big territorial grabs after that. And so the story has technically worked itself out. You've no longer got the technological and epidemiological advantages. You can't just, you're not going to roll over people. You're not going to be able to not recognize them. You're not going to be able to not recognize their states as Europeans did in Africa and North America too. There's a moral problem with it all as well. There's the moral problem. So it's technologically impossible. It's epidemiologically impossible, but it's, it's also not morally acceptable. And where we've kind of gotten ourselves into, at least a lot of folks in America have gotten ourselves into, is that we kind of have the worst of both worlds because we're telling an imperial story and it's out of date. Like it's morally unacceptable, but it's also just out of date. And when you tell yourself a story like that, that's out of date, let's say like you're not a moral person, you don't care about the moral problems, but it's still out of date. And so you're looking to like, you're looking for this frontier, but it isn't there, right? There isn't any frontier there. You're looking for the people you're going to roll over, but they're not rolling over. I mean, you may have an edge on, you may like win some political battles and deprive them of some stuff, but you're not rolling over them anymore. And so then you get this frustration. Like, so this is, I think a lot of American politics, or I'm just kind of recharacterizing the first part of your question, is in this kind of post-imperial, like this post-imperial trap where you got to move on. I mean, even if you don't see the ethical problems, you got to move on because it's not possible anymore to do that. You got to think of something else. So like story, like there's an American dream story, which doesn't depend on the territorial expansion. And that's like the American dream story that doesn't depend on just taking stuff from everybody else is the story of unions and the story of civil rights, right? So the story of where like you can have this mobility, you can move into the middle classes, right? You can have this unpredictable, unpredictable mobility, but it's not about taking stuff or having an endless frontier. It's about, we're kind of in this country now, the, you know, as of Alaska and Hawaii, like the borders are done and, how do you move around in the country? You know, how do you have a better life? Like, how do you go through school and do something interesting at the end of it, which is different from what your parents are doing? That story is there. I mean, that story is true. And it kind of goes back to the, what we were talking about before, because part of it, if we want to get that story back, I mean, it's just as true as the other one, but if you want to get the story back, you have to kind of recreate the institutions, which make it seem plausible, which we don't have right now. And that kind of brings me back to the book, right? Because you describe not just your harrowing journey, but you reflect on the birth of your children, one being born in, it was Vienna, right? Vienna, yeah. And then the second one was born here. And you compare those two experiences. And 
early childhood. And very recently there was a, I didn't read the article, but the the top line was being shared quite a bit that the United States invest in early childcare, like some horribly low number per capita. And then I think it was Finland was number one with like $14,000 or whatever. And the US was like $400 or my numbers might be a little off, but that chart's been kind of around lately. And when I was reading those portions of your book and you're talking about those differences in in the care and the attention and the focus, there's an investment in those types of institutions that you that you described that is unfathomable in our current political structure. So how do we get to investment and kind of share like some reflections on how that all looked and felt? Okay. Yeah. So, all right, I'll start with that then. I think being like, you know, we talked earlier about how almost dying was kind of maybe good for my political thinking. I think, I think uh, being a parent has been good for my political thinking and especially that, that contrast. The first kid, our son, my wife gave birth to in, in Vienna and we didn't know what it was going to be like, you know, it's a dumb thing to say, but we didn't know what it was going to be like, right? But what it was like was that we were never on our own with it. So we didn't, you know, we may not have known that many people. It may not have been our language. Some things might have been confusing, but we were never on our own. Like we had health insurance and we could see doctors whenever we wanted to. We didn't have to think, we weren't like lines, you know, that wasn't waiting. You didn't have to make, wait for appointments. There was birthing class. It was just there for us. Like we made some friends who we still have because of the birthing class. And then when my wife did give birth, like this is like the astonishing, this is like surreal, but we signed one piece of paper. Like that was it. Like nobody asked what insurance we have or like this. We gave birth. Like we, like my wife brought another person into the world and like there wasn't any stack of papers. There wasn't like a computer on wheels like they brought up. We signed one thing, which I think was about like she wanted a different kind of anesthesia than that was normal. And that was it. And that was it. Like it was all after it was just all medicine after that. And it was a complicated, I think, I mean, I wrote about this. I did. So I'll say it too. It was a complicated birth and my wife's life was at risk, but they were there. Somebody was there the whole time. Somebody was talking to students the whole time. She wanted to give birth naturally. She did. And it all worked out in the end. And then after she gave birth, we were there in the hospital for 72 hours, not because anything was wrong at that point, but because that's the legal minimum. You have to stay there for four days because they want to make sure everything's okay. They also want to make sure that you learn how to breastfeed. And which is why a much higher percentage, I'm not going to cite the numbers, but a much higher percentage of Austrian women and European women generally are able to breastfeed than American women because <laughs> our individualism starts right then. Like figure it out for yourself and a new mom, <laughs> right? Which is insane because it's actually hard. And like in the old days, the aunts and the, you know, the grandmas and so on would have been there for that, but we don't have that anymore necessarily. And so, but the basic experience was we were never alone with it, right? Whereas in the U.S., like it was much faster Oh, and all, the other thing in Austria, like we showed up early, early, like that's my American brain, like early, we showed up too early, but they didn't kick us out. You know, they're like, okay, fine. It's close enough. You're having some contractions. Let's just wait. Right. Whereas in the U S like you're in this dance where you're trying to get to the hospital right at the right time. Cause you know, otherwise they're going to kick you out. And then as soon as you give birth, they also kick you right. They kick you right out. And that's just inhuman, man. It's just inhuman. Like we had good American healthcare by American standards, but the whole thing of like, you give birth and you're out. It doesn't make any yeah. sense, right? And we're privileged. We have money. We have friends. We could find a birthing class, whatever. But it's an insane contrast. And you realize at the bottom of the contrast is a difference. And I'm again, I'm going to talk to this. I'm going to put this in terms of freedom because I think Americans have got this so wrong. You are just much more free as a future adult. 
if somebody cares about your early childhood development, because we now know that the first five years are what really, really matter. And like going back to the thing about the enlightenment, if you learn something about the world, you then incorporate, you take the challenge and you incorporate that into how you actually behave. You know, you don't do the opposite and we're doing the opposite, right? We're doing the opposite. We're saying, okay, scientists tell us that the first five years are important. So let's make it hell. Like, let's make it as hard as it can possibly be on <laughs> like boot camp. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, so the kids, like, you're, so you're, you're setting it up so that the kids have a much harder time, right? Unless it so happens that their parents are not only together, but very rich, but also it makes the parents less free. Like our vision of parenthood is basically impossible. And we're supposed to like suck it up, basically. We're not supposed to talk about it. But this model where like you have no help, where you have that $400 a year, I think it might've been 300, but like some paltry support, that's no model. Like that's basically asking parents to give up all the stuff or at least, you know, one of the spouses, one of the partners, you give everything up, but that's not freedom. Like why can't it go well for everybody? It could go well for everybody if we invested in the right way. Yeah. It's funny when you talk about Americans trying to time it, we even make this part of our pop culture in a way. Cause I, I don't know if you've ever watched the office. Many people have, but you might not be that deep a fan of the office, but there's an episode when Pam and Jim are, they're having a baby, but they try to, Pam is trying to stall going to the hospital because they want to get the maximum, like three days or something. Their insurance only pays for it. And so she's in labor but yeah. they're like, can't leave the office. We got to get there. So we get there past midnight because that's when the clock right. ticks on like another, another day, right? So we play these stories that are real and have real life consequences, kind of like for jokes, which makes it seem like, oh, it's just the way it is. It's just a quirky thing. And like what a joke does is it reveals a taboo subject, right? Because like that story, as you say, is totally true, right? Like- in my set of friends, I know like a woman who gave birth like in the lobby. I know a woman who gave birth in the taxi and so on, right? And that's like, that's normal, but it's not what we talk about because we don't talk about the body, right? It's messy. We don't talk about the body. We don't talk about reproduction. We don't talk about procreation. It's messy. So we don't talk about it. Yeah. And in not talking about it, we are oppressing ourselves because freedom begins with the body. If you can't get the body stuff right, then the rest of it is not going to be okay. The mind is not going to be okay. The society is not going to be okay. And so it, like, there's this taboo about what a disaster giving birth in the U.S. is. There's a taboo about how hard it is to be a parent. And, and accepting that taboo, like it's, that's a th- like taboos are not about freedom. Like taboos are about keeping yourself oppressed, right? And so we observe these taboos and the result is we mess up our own possibilities to be free. Yeah, and another way they love to tell that story and make it kind of heroic is when the woman gives birth in the back of a police car, right? That's always on the local news that like some cops like delivered a baby and it's like, oh, great, copaganda, right? Like we have this moment where, again, there are heroes and I'm like, "Eh, not so much, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, pushing aside, like you've already made one point, I'm going to make a different point. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Which is that like, well, they actually, it's kind of the same point, but the welfare state that you need is not, the one that has the police at the sharp bend, right? Like the people who can come into your house, like the people who come into your apartment building when something's going on, like there should be, and I know you know this, but like there should be other people besides the police. Yeah. Like, I mean, that woman, the woman who gives birth in the back of the cop car, like she should be in a hospital 
And if somebody's coming, it should be somebody else. It should be a midwife. You know, it should be somebody else. Like we should be able to call a different number when somebody else should come who knows something about giving birth. Yeah, absolutely. But that generational story of families having support in many communities of color, African communities, there's the idea of a doula who's going to kind of be with you, not just at those moments, but maybe months Mm -hmm. into the process. And there is some sort of interesting kind of commodification of that for the very wealthy. Yeah, But it seems like these are ideas that it feels like these things are no knowns. And yet we are resistant to more fully incorporating them into a new story. I love that point. I mean, this is a thing that like Plato says this and George Orwell says this and Raymond Aron says this, that if you get extreme inequality, it warps the whole field of language. And so I think what you're just describing is like one of these warps that the stuff which should be normal for everybody becomes this incredible object of privilege, right? Like just giving birth normally, for example, incredible object of privilege, but there's no reason for it to be like, there's no reason for people like we shouldn't be feeling better than ourselves. We shouldn't be feeling better than other people because we're getting something which is actually what everybody should get. And that's kind of the way the system works. Like if you get the stuff, like you spend a huge amount of money and you have a birth suite and lots of people around you and you pay people to be your doula one, doula two, doula three, you're kind of getting an approximation of what everybody should have, but you're feeling good about yourself because other people don't have it. And that's just nuts because we can afford all of this. And you mentioned Finland earlier, other countries that are not richer than we are, that have less wealth per capita, have shown that all this stuff is actually available. Like it can be done. Yeah, absolutely. Got to stop making missiles <laughs> and, and do some other things. You know, now that you brought up language, it's a perfect time for us to kind of talk about on tyranny and the graphic edition. And our very first conversation, actually, when I was doing my previous show, Two Dope Boys and a Podcast, was about on tyranny. So I had an opportunity to kind of revisit the work in graphic form, which was really cool. And There are 20 lessons within the book. 20 lessons for the 21st century is the subtitle, but we don't got time for 20 lessons. So I picked out out just a few that I want to give you an opportunity to talk about and maybe share some thoughts. The first one is actually number two, which is defend institutions. Mm -hmm. And I have a, a question connected to that, which is, is that possible? It feels like many institutions are failing. (laughs) So we should defend institutions, but like, which ones and how? (laughs) Yeah. So I guess one of the reasons that this book works, if it works, is that is it saying there's a middle ground between doing nothing and actually saving some huge part of our society? So if you're employed, you can defend the institution of journalism by subscribing and not just to newspapers and not just reading stuff, right? If you're a manager, you can defend an institution by not repeating anti-union propaganda. If you're a lawyer, you can defend the institution of the rule of law by talking about rights and not just talking about like the narrow legalism, which is kind of the rat hole that our democracy is now going down, where it's all about the ability of the states to make cumbersome bureaucracies to make voting really complicated, as opposed to, hey, right to vote we should have a right to vote. This should all be easy. So there's never, institutions have never been a pretty picture anywhere in time. What I believed and I still believe is that 
there are like always for all of us, one, two or three little steps forward that we can make. And number three, which is beware the one party state. And I'm not going to do what a lot of people do and say that, for example, Republicans and Democrats are the same. They are clearly different, but I think there is a shared consciousness that runs through both Mm -hmm. that doesn't make this a one-party state, but we got a lot of oligarchy tendencies going on here. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. how do we kind of make true difference in these two systems as they are currently presented, while also recognizing that I am not equalizing the GOP to the Democratic Party, but I'm not letting Democrats off the hook either. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Yeah. So with one party state, I mean, just like to take a step back as a historian, I was, I have in mind, you know, the examples that Americans are supposed to be familiar with, like the fascist state and the communist state. But then there's a nice thing about the graphic edition, which wasn't there in the original, where Nora Krug, like she'll take things that were a little bit under the surface in the book and she'll pull them out, right? So in this lesson you're talking about, I cite the abolitionist Wendell Phillips to the effect that freedom requires eternal vigilance. And I make the point, the eternal vigilance is not about everybody else, it's about us. You have to be vigilant about yourself. And of course, his example was slavery. And I'm trying to slip in after 1877, we actually did have a one-party state in much of our country, right? In the South, we had a one-party state. And Nora brings that out with her illustrations in a way that it wasn't in the original. And I just, it's an example that I like of how things that are kind of submerged, actually, the book actually becomes kind of more American in her hands in an interesting way. But yeah, I take your point. I mean, I think the first thing that's real simple is voting. We have to have a right to vote. If we can vote, then the oligarchy matters less. Because our policy preferences as a people, as one people now, I'm going to just imagine us as one people for a second. Our policy preferences as a people are actually not that different than the policy preferences in Finland. They're not. And if we could then, so if you have the vote, then we get some of the policies going and then we get some more solidarity and we'd be a little bit less afraid and like we get some positive cycles going. And then with the Democrats, like there's a balance. But I mean, for me, the Democrats, if we're going to have a difference, like we have to have a party, which is a party of the future. I miss that. Like, and that's one of the reasons why I like the Greens in, like I have for whatever reason, but this is something that I have a lot of friends who are like in green parties in in Europe. And it's because it's about the future. Like it's about 25 years, 30 years down the line. How can things be much better as opposed to much worse? And that we're missing that, you know, the Democrats are on the defensive understandably all the time, but we're missing that future. We need that in order to have like true variety. You got to have true variety of futures. And this is what you mentioned about thinking about the future, made me think of another point because this comes up a lot in my work where I feel like we're in this sort of, maybe battle might be too strong a word, but the nostalgia that just seems to run through both these parties Hmm. is just so, I don't know if sickening is the right word, but it's it's at least fucking annoying, right? (laughs) That like we're just, there's just even... Without the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, there just seems to be this love of nostalgia. I mean, even Biden, yeah, I'm glad he's there rather than the other guy, but it's like another kind of throwback, right? Like, if you liked Obama, you like this guy, right? And I'm like, how do we break this malaise of loving nostalgia to the point where we can't even have conversations about the future? It seems like and I'm only talking about like a, in a political sphere. I'm not talking about the work 
that organizers are doing and other people that I think is actually very forward thinking, but that's not what in the media as much. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. When I was writing road to unfreedom, like in the late 2010s, which is a book I know you read, that was my preoccupation. Where's the future? Like democracy has always been about the future. It's not about the past really. It can't be because it's like a way of handling change. It's a way of handling the fact that the world's unpredictable. And that's kind of its genius. But a democracy can't be about how, like, we used to have a better democracy in any sense at all. Frederick Douglass in 1852, on the 76th, if I'm counting right, anniversary of 1776, he gives a speech about what the 4th of July means for, I think it's called what the 4th of July means for the Negro, or that's how it's remembered. And he makes this point about the founding fathers, which I think is like dead on and genius. Like he says, look, the founding fathers were radical in their time. And so if you want to be faithful to them, you've got to be radical in your time. <laughs> you can't like going back to 1776 is not being radical, right? Like if you want to be like the way they were, you have to be radical vis-a-vis your time. And like, that seems to be exactly right. Like, so all this, I mean, you know, I find the 18th century interesting too, but their whole point was, I mean, they were imperfect in all the ways we know, but their whole point was you're moving forward. Like you're breaking free, you're doing something different. And so like worshiping them and like, like reading the constitution literally and all that, like all that nonsense, like that's the opposite of their own spirit. Like that's the opposite of what they actually would have wanted, I think. Yeah, we need a lot more imagination in our public discourse. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like we're having it. Even when we talk about like space, right? Like even that's reductive. Like I'm like, this isn't inspiring at all. I don't give a shit about Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and those ghouls going into space, right? Like it's just even our imagination on something that should be again, for the public good, feels like it's being shrunken back to just a market transaction. It's like, yeah, it's hateful. I mean, it's all about like, can their grandchildren escape while everybody else dies? That's what it's about. Like, so why should we be interested in that? Like, it kind of spoils, it spoils all of space where like, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s and like, I was, the Apollo program was something I just like, I drew the rockets. Like, this was very exciting when this first Space shuttle went up in 81. Like, I was just elated. But that was at least an American scale project. And the science, of course, was international. And yeah, I agree. Like, this is about escapism. Like, it's about escapism for a few people. And escapism for a few people is synonymous with doom for everybody else. And that just can't be the way you play it. And yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I'm writing this book about freedom now. Like, one of the things that I'm trying to articulate is how the future has also become a space that people are trying to monopolize. Like the future is just for me and my family. The future is not for everybody. Yeah. Like people are staking claims to the future like it was a frontier, like they're putting down their stakes and then there's no room for everybody else in that future. And this goes back to what you're saying. Like one of the reasons why it all feels log jammed is that oligarchy is kind of monopolizing the future. That's one of the reasons. I think climate change is another one, but that's one of the things that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the Homestead Act for the next generation, right? Like they're all running out there on a horse and planting their flag and trying to leave the rest of us. But point number nine is read books, right? Which comes to language. And I think you say like, be kind to our language in within that section. And, you know, I wanted to give you a chance, I'm not just as an author of books, but like 
I think in one of our earlier conversations, I facetiously said, like, kind of like, why don't people just read more? <laughs> right? Like, so many problems would be solved if people actually knew the things they were talking about rather than just saying things that don't make any sense. Yeah. Well, the internet tribalizes us in a lot of ways. I mean, it helps us find fake enemies that we never see in real life. Like going back to your very early question about 6 January, like those guys, they didn't see any voter fraud. They were drawn to the Capitol by the internet, basically finding their, finding their vulnerabilities, getting them decked out in the real world. If people knew what they were talking about, I mean, I think a big part of it is knowing how to talk about stuff and like talking about it in a way which is unexpected and catches people off guard. And for me, that's what books are for, or at least there is the knowledge. And like, I'm all in favor of that. And we've talked a lot about that already with child development, for example. But there's also the how we talk. Like like a friend of mine is just starting to read the novels of Julian Barnes, who is a wizard, as far as I'm concerned. Like the guy seems to be able to do practically anything. Like you look at him and he's like a graceful athlete and he can do and and each book is just great. And you think like, oh, like that'd have been the only novel he wrote. Like, <laughs> you know, you're already amazing. And I think, yeah, like I like Julian Barnes. I wish I had more time to read Julian Barnes. The point is that if we read novels, then our language expands and we can say the same things in a slightly different way, but then we're not exactly saying the same things. And then we're having a conversation. Whereas the internet and our polarized politics bring us down to a few phrases. And so we're just then like a rubber ball bouncing off the wall of a house. That's all we bring to this story is that like you bounce the ball off that wall and I'm going to bounce it off a different wall and we're going to just keep doing that. And that's the read books, you know, it's knowing what you're talking about, but it's also what the written word brings to the spoken word into our interactions. That's important to me. Yeah, it makes it much, much richer. We have to find a way to engage. And the last point I want to bring up of the 20 is number 18, which is be calm when the unthinkable arrives. And we kind of joked about this before, but I think some of us have a different definition of what is unthinkable <laughs> okay, yeah. relative to others, right? So I remember like after the Capitol, right? My wife friends were like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. I'm, oh, what's happening? And I was like, I'm not surprised by this at all, right? Like these lunatics have been telling you this for decades, not just years, decades. I like, do you not know George Wallace. Like, come on, man. These yeah. people have been in the streets forever. Like, so how do we deal with being calm when we have different unthinkables? Because I can imagine all of this falling apart quite easily. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I totally, I take your point. And it's true of Trump in 2016 too. For a lot of people that was unthinkable. And the fact that it was unthinkable showed where they were living. And like the reason why for me, it wasn't unthinkable was that I was living mentally in Ukraine and Russia where a lot of the stuff had just been happening. But for African-Americans, like it was not unthinkable for other more basic grounds. Like, but I guess the way I defend that lesson is I would just say that nothing is really unthinkable, right? And so I'm trying to take actually in your point into account. So it may seem unthinkable, but that's not an excuse to panic because it's happening. So we may all have different unthinkability thresholds, but when it comes down, you got to be calm. Because if you're part of the panic, then you're part of the problem. And you're probably somebody wants you to panic. You're probably doing what you're supposed to be doing. So that I guess that's how I would try to defend that lesson. Yeah, I love the lesson. I love unthinkability threshold. That's a good one. <laughs> I think I stole it from you, but okay. Yeah. No, I don't. Maybe. I don't know. We'll co-credit. I don't care. Idea. Maybe I was reading the novel and that helped. Yeah. Me. <laughs> but that is definitely a good one. You know, I want to get us to the last two sections because I'm keeping an eye on time as I always do. 
off the dome, just some rapid fire questions, and then we'll get to the drop. And I have three off the dome. And actually, two of them are kind of related to childhood in a way, because that was, it was really a, a part of the of your book that really touched me, was those reflections on the difference in our systems. And I wish more Americans really left behind the idea that our way is the only way. So my little preface, but what is the one thing you wish someone told you about parenting, but didn't? Uh, that other people are very, very often going to be better influences on your kids than you are yourself. That's a good one. People are very nervous about their kids. They're very helicopterish, right? Isn't that the language we use? <laughs> yeah. Like, but then like there's a soccer coach or there's a babysitter or whatever. And I realized like these people have lived lives that they've got stuff to teach my kids that I don't have to teach my kids. And like, it's also kind of liberating, right? Because like being like in the American version, being a dad or a mom involves being a superhero. Like you can do it all and you can't, you can't do it all. And one of the things you can do is you can kind of get them with other people. Like Very cool. Very cool. When you were a kid, what was your biggest dream or aspiration? Well, I mean, for myself, I've been like, I'm writing this book about freedom and partly I'm writing it because I feel like I've through a lot of good luck, I've been able to live a life that's pretty free. And I did want to do that. And like, as I get older and I understand more about my country, I can understand more about the luck. But like for the thing, it's actually what we were talking about before. Like it was space, space and science. And one of the great disappointments for me is the way in my country, the science has become something that people think they can attack. And space, as we talked about before, has become something which is so narrow and privatized. But that's what my dream, I mean, my dreams when I was very young were physicists, build rockets, like explore that stuff, make science bigger. It's awesome one. Carl Sagan would have been happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this is my last off the dome. If you can gain an extra hour a day, what would you do with it? If I could make myself sleep, I would sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of suspected sleep would be a big one, but I think many people would probably say sleep, right? Like I'm trying not to like sound too virtuous here. Like probably the best thing I could say, probably that would be the best thing for like my family and my friends and everybody if I could like sleep another hour. Yeah. Sleep is precious. Shout out to a great Twitter account, Nat Ministry, that talks a lot about the benefits of rest and sleeping as a radical act of resistance. So <laughs> all for that. So those are great. And now I'm going to get to the drop. And the drop is always just a recommendation. It could be anything at all that our listeners should be aware of. I have one and a half drops because they're kind of related to the same thing. So I can go first or do you want to go first? No, I want you to go first. Okay. My drop, well, my one and a half drops is a documentary on Amazon. So even though I, listeners know I shit on Amazon a lot, but I do watch Amazon. Um, so sorry, paradox. And the documentary is about someone in the civil rights movement that I actually, and I didn't know much about at all. And it's called My Name is Pauli Murray. And she was a great thinker and leader in the civil rights movement. I subsequently bought her autobiography, which is called Song in a Weary Throat. So that's where I'm kind of throwing in the one and a half drop. So the documentary is amazing. The book, I have it, but I haven't cracked it, but I am looking forward to it. And I'm really interested in women and other identities kind of getting their rightful place in these journeys. And so that was a part of why I really responded to it. It makes 
the movements of liberation far more rich than I had known them to be in my youth. So that's my drop. My name is Paulie Murray, which is on Amazon Prime. Okay. So I, that kind of makes me feel good because there's a lot of stuff going on in my university right now, and some of it isn't so great. But we do have a college named after Paulie Murray. So Oh, awesome. See, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. So we have two new colleges, and one of them is named after Paulie Murray. So that's something. I tried not to think about what was going to be before our conversation because I decided I would like let it be determined by our conversation. But now I think I know what it should be. I'm teaching a class with my colleague, Jason Stanley, who's a philosopher about mass incarceration in the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which has been an interesting juxtaposition. We're learning a lot. And I'm reading some stuff I hadn't read before, which I really should have read. But a book which is very much apropos some of the things we've been talking about and which I just finished and which is new is my colleague Elizabeth Hinton's book, America on Fire, in which she recasts events of the late 60s and early 70s, not as riots, but as rebellions, and tries to explain essentially from the inside of a lot of institutions, like inside the apartment block, inside of the school, what it was like for African-Americans, young, old, and a whole bunch of cities to be confronted by new policies in which they were much more often in contact with police, like how that looked from there. And it's masterful, like especially the chat, there's a chapter on schools where I just don't see how she could have gotten so deep as she did. So my drop is going to be America on Fire by Elizabeth Hinton. That is a great drop. And I've had this book, like I don't have the physical book, but I've had it like in my like list of books to get and read for quite a bit. I just started seeing it on Twitter a lot and I took like the screenshot and I was like, I got to get this book. So, you know, I'm, this is a drop that I'm also going to be taking advantage of myself because I've everything I've seen or mentioned about it or at this end, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. So I'm definitely going to be checking it out. That's an awesome drop for our listeners. As always, this has been a great conversation. I always look forward to the opportunities when we can share a dialogue and go back and forth. Our malady is fantastic. On Tyranny has been fantastic for years. I engage, you know, or implore our listeners to go out and get one or both, preferably both, and live with these books for a while and live with your work. And again, I really want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. I want to thank you for staying in touch over the years and I'll look forward to the next time we get to talk. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.